0: You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to have you join us uh, on this beautiful day. Man, look at the weather we got here. If you're watching online and you're not in Pittsburgh, I'm sorry. You're missing out on, like, this is the best we get. Um... It'll get really hot from here, and you know, then we'll all complain. But it's really good right now. Uh, if I have the chance to meet you, my name is Nick. I'm the lead pastor, and look who we have up here, Pastor Jason. Uh, um, we let him out of his little music box uh, today. To do some talking. I don't know what to do with my
1: hands, yeah. I don't have a guitar,
0: so we're uh, we're continuing our series, uh, peace, our unity, peace, and other impossible goals. If you missed last week, Pastor Michael did an awesome job kicking the series off. Before we jump in to uh, to the message this morning, I just want to mention one thing you know, over the last uh, year or so, uh, our, our team, uh, specifically Pastor Delane, has worked really hard, uh, on uh, this is something that we do on a regular basis, which is maximizing every penny, every dollar that is given. We are so blessed uh, that you give. We do not have an abundance as a church, I'll tell you that. We maximize and make every dollar count for eternity. It's so important, uh, not just in our accounting, but also in how we use resources that we are blessed with, and we were able to acquire a grant over this last year, which is going to allow us to do some capital improvements that you're going to start to see happen throughout our facility, throughout our campus, over the next six to eight months, and we um, and, and this isn't money that you have given. This is money that we uh, found through a grant, and we we're really fortunate. So in the coming month, uh, where you're sitting, for those who are here physically, where you're sitting, do you guys like your seats right now? Are they comfortable? Are they good? They're going to be gone. Um, we are— uh, too, like,
1: too bad if you like pink. Sorry. If, you, if sorry. you like
0: it, we will have them available. You can take them home with you. Um, <laughs> But uh, we are going to be uh, we we're going to be getting in order this actually week uh, new chairs so we're gonna have chairs in here uh, we'll have a middle aisle so people who always want to have a middle aisle for weddings it's gonna be here um, so over the next month you'll start to see those we're gonna be having a work day in July if you like to use a chainsaw uh, or at least can use one safely um, we're gonna have a day where we're gonna be able to to uh, take part in taking things apart and uh, putting things uh, in their rightful place. And so uh, we'll be kind of reworking this room and uh, even throughout the next year, getting new carpet uh, here in the sanctuary and some other improvements you'll see across the campus. So uh, we are so blessed, uh, first of all, that you give. and. We wanna make use of every penny that is given. I can't stress how important that is. And we're really fortunate to be able to have these grants uh, that are allowing us to do some capital improvements that may have been difficult otherwise, but now are allowing us in this 50th year to kind of turn the page into a new season and uh, for things to be ready for a new generation. So uh, we're so thankful for that. So be on the lookout for that. If you wanna help, uh, you'll hear more about this in July. If you wanna come for the workday and vacuum or use your chainsaw or just use your muscles or just watch everybody around um, you or if you, or if
1: you have have like OCD and you want everything to be right in the Every right chair. place you can put the chairs you can set the chairs up you and Nick
0: and I will can probably we... come behind you and <laughs> tweak them because I do have that um, I anticipate I will be in here for hours moving things like half an inch an eighth of an inch 16th of an inch just so everything's lined up so uh, That'll be coming in July, so well, you'll look forward to that coming uh, in the next uh, few weeks, month, and uh, we're really fortunate about that. So today, we're, we're diving into this topic, uh, unity, peace, and other impossible rules. I, I don't know kind of your take on this, but I can tell you my take on this, and, and my take might be a little different because I, you know, helped uh, create this and everything, but uh, over these last couple years, uh, the idea of unity or peace in our world and our society has been, uh, this like pipe dream that you're like, oh, that's really cool, you know, you're a really positive person, I appreciate that. And inside you're like, that is never gonna happen, but I'm glad you're shooting for the stars. Um, the deal is, and, and my Pastor Michael mentioned this last week, Like unity is really important for the church. And, and this is our aim, that if Jesus prayed for it, it has to be possible. Maybe not on our own, but with his help. You know, one of my favorite pictures that we see of, of unity, of, of what the church is supposed to look like is found in Acts chapter two. And, and, and this picture is so important because like, it is the earliest snapshot we have of the church. Like, the church literally just started in Acts chapter two. And by the end of the chapter, we see this church functioning. Here's, here's what it says in verse 42 of Acts two. Uh, if you have your Bibles, this is a uh, new international version that we'll be reading from uh, here today. Verse 42, it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Can you say everything? Everything in common. Not some things, everything. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Man, what an incredible picture. Now, if we're not careful when we take this out of context, we can get this idea like they were living in a Christian commune. Uh, that wasn't happening, okay? Uh, if you go through historical uh, records, they were living in separate houses, okay? They weren't living in a commune, uh, but they had everything in common, it says. This is this incredible snapshot of what God intended the church to be and how he intended it to function. Why is this such a good picture? Because it was so soon after the church was launched. Like the church exploded on the day of Pentecost. or the week after Last Sunday was the day, the, the Pentecost Sunday, like, we're a week later, so appropriate. Like, it had just started, okay, and things hadn't had time to drift, as they oftentimes can. And as Pastor Michael said last week, this was the answer to Jesus' prayer, that the church would be one. They were diverse in so many ways, and yet they were one. Uh, it says they had everything in common, not that they were uniformed, like, they weren't all wearing the same blue sweatsuits. Um, they didn't all you know go to the same barber get their hair cut in that little bull cut so they looked like a cult or something. Um, that wasn't the case. You guys aren't laughing at all today. Man, we're gonna be in for a long day.
1: Maybe they're thinking about how we all tend to wear the same like shirts. That's
0: true. If you see my son Zach and, and Luke and I, we have matching shirts today, and we are not part of a cult, we're just part of the same family. Um, so just to put you at ease, it's just our thing. We're going on vacation soon and we all have matching shirts. It's just, we're weird like that. Um, but but when, when you get to this point, Acts 2, 42, like the church is unified, they're working together, and what I love is they're not working together just to gather, but they're making a difference. They're selling their property. They're, they're, they're giving to those who are in need. Like they're working together to make a difference. It wasn't just about gathering. And, and, and then over the next few hundred years, things slowly start to change. Little by little, the church, capital C, would morph and adapt, and in some ways, even transform into something entirely different. This group that had become known as Christians, which literally means little Christs, meaning like they were a, a small representation of Jesus, started to gain status in society. This fringe religious group slowly started to become acceptable. And with that acceptance became more and more defined by their size and influence and not their beliefs and practice. And then we come to 313 AD. In 313 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine issues this edict that is groundbreaking. It's the Edict of Milan. Uh, And and this edict would be a game changer throughout the Roman uh, world, especially for Christians, uh, because it decriminalized Christianity and and decreed that Roman citizens had, quote, here's the quote, the the liberty to observe the religion of their choice and their particular mode of worship. There was freedom of worship. When Constantine rose to power in 306 AD, the Roman Empire was still actively persecuting Christians. And they were attempting to destroy all traces of this religion known as Christianity. Constantine's edict would be this radical move toward openness with the practice of Christianity. And by his death in 330 AD, Christians occupied many of the major roles in the upper echelons of Roman government and society. This was more significant of a shift than we could ever understand in our American context with a stroke of a pen, Constantine took what had been illegal and actually made it encouraged. It wasn't until this point in history that the ecclesia, or the church, began to refer to a physical building as opposed to a gathering. Like this morning, you maybe said to someone, hey, we're going to church. And, and when you said we're going to church, your mind, you thought of a building, right? Some of you, maybe it's online, but... but our, our cultural context is a building. This is also the first time in history that something became common that is very normal today, which is professional clergy. Up to that point, uh, there wasn't such thing as professional clergy or pastors uh, who do this as a full-time career, so to speak. Christianity, from this moment on, started to become legitimate, acceptable, polished. And for the first time in church history, being known as a Christian could further your status in society. And slowly over time, the line between the pursuit of Jesus and the pursuit of power and influence would get more and more blurred. This pursuit would reach its pinnacle almost 1,200 years after the Edict Milan. On October 31st, 1517, when the church and Christians had drifted so far from that picture of Acts 2, that it wasn't even recognizable anymore. This led a priest and scholar by the name of Martin Luther in Wittenberg, Germany, to write his 95 theses, beginning the Protestant Reformation. This Reformation happened not simply because of an issue of theology or even religious practice. It happened because of a shift that had happened regarding the identity of followers of Jesus. This fracture of identity created a fracture of unity across the global church.
1: And now just 500 years later, it seems like we found ourselves in a similar place in American church. where We're experiencing that fractured unity and fractured identity. Like like Nick said, there's a lot of talk about unity in, in, in our day. There's a lot of talk about that from everywhere and how we need unity. But today we want to talk about how our identity as followers of Jesus is pivotal in that pursuit of unity. Because Christian unity, like Jesus prayed for, isn't the same thing that the world is talking about. The world is talking about unity too, but for Christians, it looks different. We're pursuing something even greater than what the world is reaching for, because our unity is built on who we know. And kind of the, the, here's the big idea today that we want you to go home with and to understand when we're talking about unity as Christians, what's unique is that the priority of our Christian unity is who we know over what we know. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that we know and we have to agree on. I know that some of you are the logical thinkers are like, no, 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 there's things that we know and we got to agree on that. There are, that is true. And there are things that we know and we agree on together as Christians. Commonly, these things are called essential issues. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but the essential issues of our faith. And so that's why we titled this message, Meat and Potatoes. Now, uh, I like meat and potatoes. Who else loves meat and potatoes? Like, every meal, you could have eaten potatoes, meat and potatoes. A second would be, like, some kind of meat and rice. You go to Chipotle, Taco Bell, right? Okay, yeah. but meat and potatoes, I could eat all the time. I come from a family of meat and potatoes lovers. In fact, my grandfather, uh, his name was Clyde Shiring, but in the Norman area, he loved meat and potatoes so much, he was, named, he was known as Spuds spuds shiring
0: we're gonna start Uh, calling you spuds (laughs) little spuds
1: little spuds i i I, like as a kid growing up i wasn't sure if his real first name was clyde or spuds i wasn't sure which was the real name or the nickname so i come from that i love meat and potatoes and so most essential issues which we're going to call the meat and potatoes today are about who god is who we are called to be as followers of Jesus and as the church. That's what we're saying. Those things we have to agree on. Who God is, who we are called to be as followers of Jesus, and who we're called to be as the church. That's the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for. It's built upon these priorities as the foundation. And unfortunately, when we miss this, then we can get in a dangerous place where we forget who we're always called to be representing, and that's Jesus. And being real today, we want to talk about this um, because of how it's affected us and our hearts have been broken. The American church has increasingly been guilty of mixing up these priorities. And the last two years have revealed that more than ever, I think. Rather than the main things being the meat and potatoes, we are seeing American church divide over things that are really side dishes. So it's like we're going to Chick-fil-A and then we won't sit together because somebody wants to have mac and cheese and somebody wants to have a salad or whatever but meanwhile we're all eating chicken and waffle fries the best chicken and waffle fries that there are of course so i'm not talking about we're disagreeing over you know christian the the basics of christian doctrine or even our styles and approaches to ministry we're making people are making theological choices over Ideological problems, politics, social issues, sometimes, unfortunately, even what other people are attending the same church. And we're not sharing this because we're perfect or we just want to share our soapbox frustrations. But because of how we've seen broken relationships around us, we've experienced that brokenness from people that we love. Just kind of being honest and open, like the past two years have been painful as we've seen that. We've experienced those losses. I've lost count of the number of conversations that Nick and I have had over this. Sitting in his office, sitting at a restaurant where we're talking about this, we're seeing it around us, we're seeing broken relationships within the church over secondary issues that are dividing unity, that we have experienced that ourselves. And we're sharing this today because we wanna reach for something better. We wanna reach for the unity that Jesus prayed for. Unity isn't reached because we all vote the same, because we all agree on every social issue, or even because we all act the same. Unity is reached because we all worship, serve, and pursue one savior. But what's happened throughout church history, like we were talking about before, seems to be happening again. That same fracture of our identity and unity, but in a new way, In our culture, in our time, our perception, sometimes of superiority, that we hold the solution to society's problems, has created division in the church, not unity. And this doesn't always come from a bad place. I think a lot of times we have intentions that we want what is good for our world. We want what's best for our world. We want the broken things to be made right, and sometimes we're very passionate about how it can fix, and that's not a bad place that that motivation comes from. But what our world really needs more than that is isn't our right answer, our solution as Christians. It needs us passionately living out the life and the identity that God has called us to in unity. You see, the last 2,000 years of history has shown us that more than any solution we have on our own, it's our uncompromising devotion to Jesus that will ultimately make America, our nation, a better place and our world a safer and better place. I want to say that again. I, I've got that from a guy named Andy Stanley who's been, been preaching on, on this topic that's really resonated from us. That more than anything else, it's our uncompromising devotion to Jesus that will ultimately make, better, make America a better nation and our world a safer and better place. And this is the perspective that true unity can be built on.
0: Now, in today's day and age, we're in the middle of the information age. And knowledge is at our fingertips. Like, you are holding in your hand, many of you, a device that you can literally find almost anything out of. Whether it's, um, you can ask Alexa at home, you know, what's the weather today? You can ask your Google Home or Siri, when the last time the Pirates won the World Series, which is a long time ago. Like, really long time ago. 1979. Yeah, a long time ago. Man, so, um, uh, were they even the Pirates back then? I, I, like... (laughs) Uh, you can even Google, uh, like, a good recipe for no bake cookies. So, I mean, I encourage you to do that and make those, and you can bring them to church whenever you'd like. We're here Monday through Thursday, 9 to 5. But you can Google all kinds of things. Like, you can find all kinds of things out. <laughs> knowledge is, of almost anything has never been more accessible. It's remarkable. And while having knowledge, I think, is a great thing, what has happened over the last few years is our knowledge has become this wedge between us, and at times even a weapon we use against each other. You see, while the pursuit of knowledge can unite us, when we perceive we've cornered the definitive answer to something that isn't in that meat and potatoes category, it can divide us. Now let me give you an example. If you were to Google restaurants in the Norwin area, you would get well over 100 responses. and, and whether you're from Norwin or somewhere else, wherever you live, you'd probably get a similar response if you Googled it. And, and I would venture to guess in the list of restaurants in wherever you live or in this area, there's probably one or two that like rise to the top, like some of your favorites, if you will. Now imagine sharing with someone your favorite restaurant, like, this is my favorite restaurant. And the response is, "You're crazy. That place is horrible. I hate that place. Like this place is better than that." Now, if they didn't say that in a joking kind of way, you could easily take offense to that. And and in a casual sense, the perceived knowledge of what restaurant is better could become this wedge that separates you with another person. And, and this wedge becomes even more significant when the issue is actually a legitimate issue, when it's bigger. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's an approach to, to schooling or education. Maybe it's a choice in how you use your money or how you raise your kids. And as the stakes get higher and higher, the perception of knowledge can carry a greater and greater weight and even a greater ability to divide us. Now, in the first century, while they didn't have the Internet like we do or Google or any of that, uh, they, they had the possession of knowledge. And knowledge was a very, very important aspect of Roman culture. Philosophers in Roman culture were celebrated. Intellectuals were revered. In fact, the smartest were seen as the greatest. And and even the Caesar, who was the greatest of them all, who was given the title of deity, would carry with that title the understanding of superior knowledge.
1: So this view of knowledge and the superiority of knowledge worked its way into the early church, similar in a lot of ways to how it has nowadays. And one of the churches that we saw this happen with was a church called uh, Corinth. Corinth was a major cosmopolitan city where many cultures blended together. Intellect flowed, philosophers uh, flourished, knowledge was important. And because of this, the church in Corinth... They face a significant obstacle to fulfilling the prayer that Jesus prayed, that we, we talked about last week. Mike, Pastor Michael did a great job talking about last week. And we can, let's, let's revisit that again. In John 17, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you.
0: And unity becomes difficult when the perception of knowledge becomes a priority. So, if the perception of knowledge and having the corner on a knowledge market becomes the priority, unity becomes really, really difficult. As the Apostle Paul is addressing this in his first letter to the Corinthian church, he addresses what really was dividing them. And it was this. Was it right for a Christian to eat food sacrificed to animals? Now, I don't think that's a really a dominant issue in today's culture or in American church or our church even today. Um, but you could easily change it to something like this. Is it right for a Christian to vote for a Democrat or a Republican? Is it right for a Christian to drink alcohol? Is it right for a Christian to send their kids to a public school? Is it right for a Christian to wear a mask? Is it right for a Christian to get a COVID vaccine? I could keep going. We're just gonna step on everyone's toes. Is it right for a Christian to do? And you fill in the blank. Like whatever, you know, question you would, fill in the blank. And if we're not careful, our answer to any of those questions or our perceived knowledge of that answer can become a divisive tool. Here's how Paul laid out the issue in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1. He said, now, about food sacrificed to animals. That was the hot hot button thing at that time. Now, uh, about food sacrificed to animals. We know that we all possess knowledge. So this was an understanding, like we possess knowledge, we know a lot. He said, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. The first step to possessing knowledge is acknowledging our own ignorance. And without love, there is only the appearance of knowledge.
1: There are many issues in our day that we all bring strong convictions to. That in our perception, we know what is right. We know what is best for our families, for our community, for our church, for our nation, for our world. We know what is right, what is best. But when we combine our current culture's emphasis on this knowledge and in knowing what is right with a misperception of what unity really is, it means we've gotten into kind of a big mess we know that Jesus calls the church to unity. Part of that unity is an agreement built on what we know to be right in the meat and potatoes. But in the days of cancel culture, we tend to miss some important nuances after that. So let's look back at what Paul was speaking out about in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, which you haven't figured out now. 1 Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth. Corinth, good job, they got it, they so, it. Man, so, so smart. Yeah. The issue at hand was how food was being handled by Christians.
0: So here's kind of what was taking place, because we don't live in that culture, and it's hard to understand like, why that was even a thing, it seems really dumb, but for them it was a big deal. It was an accepted social practice uh, to have meals in temples at that time, or in some place associated with a pagan idol. Uh, in fact, uh, biblical scholar James Moffat, he says this, it was all part and parcel of the formal etiquette in society, like this was just a regular thing of society. Like today's day and age, you might say, Let's go out to eat, and you find a restaurant, and you go out to eat. Like that seems so normal and regular and natural. Uh, that's the way it was then. Uh, you would go to a temple or a place uh, that was associated with a pagan idol, and you would have a meal together. The occasions, public or private, where people were likely to come together socially were most often the same occasions where eating meat sacrificed to an idol would have been common. So if you choose to have nothing to do with gatherings like this, you would essentially be cutting yourself off from all social gatherings. Beyond that, uh, most of the meat sold in the markets had first been offered in sacrifice at one of these temples. Part of the animal that was sacrificed would have been offered on an altar to the pagan god. Another part would go to the priests, and usually part would go to the worshipers. The priests customarily sold what they did not use in the marketplace. And because of this, it would have been very, very difficult to really know which meat was sacrificed and which wasn't in the marketplace. It wasn't labeled. So the question was asked by, to Paul by the Corinthian Christians, uh, what were they supposed to do about this? Like this was a really difficult decision and, and it was dividing them. And they were arguing and debating and they didn't know what to do. And, and there were really two sides to the issue. One, were they to not go to dinner at friends' homes because the food served may have previously been offered to uh, a pagan god or goddess. And two, uh, for those Christian homes, the the temple meat markets were the normal place uh, where they would shop. So were they just supposed to be a vegetarian and just not eat meat at all? In struggling with this issue, the Corinthians uh, rightly went back to kind of the basic truths. They searched truths, you know, uh, Christian teaching and doctrine uh, for guidelines. And and different people came up with different answers. There's a shocker, right? Right? It divided many in the church, and the dispute became so sharp that the parties would appeal to Paul, who had helped start the church. He was like a spiritual father to them. And they were asking him to, like, tell us who's right, what's right here. Now, most commentators feel that Paul, in writing his answer in the book of 1 Corinthians, actually quoted from some of their own arguments. Uh, And here are some of the phrases that he would use to represent the views that uh, that had led one group to their conclusion that both the social practice and shopping at a temple meat market were actually acceptable. In verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 8, he says, an idol is nothing at all in the world. He's, he's quoting them in that moment. And later in verse 8, he said, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So he's sharing like their arguments on why it was acceptable. Now, it, these arguments are strong and they actually reflect something uh, that's really important. That, that these Corinthian Christians had grown and matured spiritually. For them to come to those conclusions. All the gods and goddesses that the Corinthians had once feared and tried to appease or had worshiped in the unlikely expectation of some kind of aid or help didn't even exist. They weren't real. These believers were freed from the emptiness of the whole system, which is great. They now laughed at these lumps of stone or, or metal that were known as idols that had once held them in bondage. Because of this, when they attended social events and idols were honored or the Corinthians, uh, the Corinthian Christians felt only joy, that they knew the true living God and dismissed the idolatry as empty and meaningless. Those who objected to this seemed to, to, to these Christian Corinthians uh, who, who, who knew the truth here, they seemed to, 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 to say that those other Christians were still in bondage to false beliefs about pagan gods and goddesses that a Christian should discard. I wanna pause here for a second because there's so many crazy parallels to this story. And, and uh, like I said earlier, I'm gonna step on some toes, but so be it, here we are. I love you very much, and this is in grace. <laughs> there have been things that have been said on opposite sides over the last few years about people's maturity over their stance on COVID and all kinds of political things, social things, and you know, if you uh, wear a mask or get a vaccination, you have no faith, or you're living in fear, or if you, you don't, then you're you know, not caring or loving, or, or if, if you don't side with the police, you feel this way, or if you don't side with uh, 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 different social issues and minorities and, and how the African American population is treated, you feel this way, and, 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 and we've made these definitive statements about a person's spiritual maturity their faith, and their belief on an ideological stance. And this is what Paul was trying to get at here. And I don't want you to miss this parallel because this is, this is really important. He's speaking straight to it. This is the struggle of the Corinthian church. Maybe it's not the exact same issue, but honestly, it's being played out in a very similar way. So this group in Corinth, uh, basing their practices on what seemed to be good doctrinal reasoning, participate in social idolatry without really a, a, a care or a qualm of their conscience. They were right in their doctrine and if you read the chapter in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul gently actually agrees with their insights, with this group who felt comfortable eating the meat. He, he, he in a nice way, agreed with them. But, but, Paul goes on to show them that it's actually possible to be quote unquote right And still be wrong.
1: So in 1 Corinthians 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 9, it says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. Oh, that's, that's heavy. I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> so that I will not cause them to fall. So here we see an issue in which Paul knew what is right, but yet he was willing to defer to what he actually called a weaker brother or sister. But if we're called to unity by Jesus, then why isn't Paul insisting that they follow what he knows is is right, of his knowledge of what is right? So since this passage is already talking about meat, and we've said it before, let's say it again. Paul also knew that the issue was at hand was not the meat and potatoes of our faith. These were not essential issues. This was not about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about who we know and who we're called to be. And so if we allow ourselves to major on the minors, like meat, or on the side dishes, we will find ourselves with a plate full of side dishes and no meat. And Paul explains this more as we look ahead at what he wrote in the next chapter, as we're looking at that with the band come up. In 1 Corinthians 9 he says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those that are under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So we are called to unity and the essentials of our faith in Jesus. Of what the foundation of what it's built on. And the gospel, we're unified in our agreement and our knowledge of these things, but we're also called to show love and grace in the non-essentials. It's a part of our call to unity, sometimes even to the point of giving up our rights and our freedom. In American culture, that can be our freedom to say what we know is right when it's going to cause division and going to take away from unity. In fact, these days, it can actually seem like it's the point of virtue, doesn't it? To yell about what we know is right on social media, especially. It can seem like that's the virtue, to yell about what we know is right. Meanwhile, our our friends, our neighbors are seeing more and more of our puffed up knowledge, as Paul said, than they are of seeing Jesus. But Jesus is the one that we're always called to represent. Because the priority of Christian unity is who we know over what we know. It's about who we are called to be and who we are called to represent. Today, as the band's up here with us, we want to take a moment for the Holy Spirit to speak. Like Nick said, I know we've stepped on some toes. Hopefully, we've stepped on everybody's toes. (laughs) Because it should be something that makes us a little uncomfortable. The reason we're talking about this is because as, as we've looked, you know, I think there's been, Jesus prayed for unity, and the amazing thing is that we can be the answer to that prayer. Like, stop and think about that for a moment. G, what Jesus prayed for, we can be the answer for as the church. And I think over the past couple years, this, this is what Jason's opinion, Jason's perspective I think there's been a little bit of a pop quiz that God gave the church on unity and I don't think we did so good and it breaks my heart but I think we can do better and maybe you're someone who's sitting here today and you're like, no, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't me, I didn't do that but, you know, the scripture says that we are all one body and so in that pop quiz, we can't just be like, no, I'm, I'm the liver in that body. I didn't write the answer, so it's not my grade. I think we're all one church, not just Calvary Church, but the church, big capital C Church, and we can look at that and say we didn't do so good, and we want to be part of doing better and reaching for what's better. And so we want to give, take a moment today and let the Holy Spirit speak, and I, just, I want you in that little bit of uncomfortableness that maybe you feel, I want, want to ask you to not just kind of brush that off, but to lean into that. And let's bring that to the Holy Spirit today. There's things that the Holy Spirit, I think, wants to say that Nick and I can't even say. And the band's gonna play just a little bit and have a song, but we wanna take a moment with, with our, our eyes closed, bowed, hands open, whatever you want us to do to express outwardly, that we wanna take a moment for, for the Spirit to work in us to say, how can we do better in unity? that we would stick to the essentials and that in the non-essentials, even when we know what might be right, that we're actually willing to give up our freedom so that the church can have unity, so we can represent Jesus. Just take a moment to pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak and work in us today. We, we just we, we know that we can do better We as your church, we want to live out the unity that you have called us to. And it can seem so daunting that we can't fix it for all the church in the whole world, but we can work on ourselves and work on our relationships. And we pray today that you would speak to us to show us how we can do better in living out the unity that you have called us to.